When I was in school, I absolutely hated writing. It wasn't until I was a bit older that I came to understand the power of words. If you're a business owner, you understand that power too. A business blog, when done right, can drive sales, increase revenue, and get you more customers. But as a business owner, you probably don't have the time to do all that writing. Plus, if you're not a copywriter by trade, you might feel like you're just kind of throwing words out there and they're not actually accomplishing anything. The good news is, there's a simple solution. Check it out. I call it the ultimate blog post checklist for businesses with online stores. This checklist will allow you to write better, more effective articles that convert readers into buyers. It's full of easy to follow examples to get your creativity flowing based on experience of nearly a million words written. And best of all, it's effective on any type of article in any industry or niche. I've successfully used this exact checklist on topics from pool table reviews to investment advice. Tired of spending tons of time writing stuff that doesn't convert? This checklist will change that by giving you highly effective blog posts and articles that transform readers into paying customers. Go to invicta.enterprises slash free checklist and start saving time and transforming your writing now. That's invicta.enterprises slash free checklist. Hey, welcome back to another World Audiobooks. Hope every each and every one of you is doing well, staying safe and healthy. Hope you guys are enjoying the podcast so far and this uh, uh, more Sherlock stories just keep coming at you. And we're starting one of my favorites. This is called The Musgrave Ritual and it is definitely a classic Sherlock tale where he actually goes back and uh, tells a, uh, a story of one of his early escapades. So just sit back, relax, and enjoy The Musgrave Ritual. Six. The Musgrave Ritual An anomaly which often struck me in the character of my friend Sherlock Holmes was that, although in his methods of thought, he was the neatest and most methodical of mankind, and although also he affected a certain quiet primness of dress, he was, nonetheless, in his personal habits, one of the most untidy men that ever drove a fellow lodger to distraction. Not that I am in the least conventional in that respect myself, the rough-and-tumble work in Afghanistan, coming on the top of a natural bohemianism of disposition, has made me rather more lax than befits a medical man, but with me there is a limit, and where I find a man who keeps his cigars in the coal-scuttle, his tobacco in the toe-end of a Persian slipper, and his unanswered correspondence transfixed by a jackknife into the very centre of his wooden mantelpiece, then... I begin to give myself virtuous airs. I have always held, too, that pistol practice should be distinctly an open-air pastime, and when Holmes, in one of his queer humours, would sit in an armchair with his hair trigger and a hundred boxer cartridges, and proceed to adorn the opposite wall with a patriotic V.R. done in bullet pox, I felt strongly that neither the atmosphere nor the appearance of our room was improved by it. Our chambers were always full of chemicals and of criminal relics which had a way of wandering into unlikely positions, and of turning up in the butter-dish, or even less desirable places. But his papers were my great crux. He had a horror of destroying documents, especially those which were connected with his past cases, and yet it was only once in every year or two that he would muster energy to dock it and arrange them. For, as I have mentioned somewhere in these incoherent memoirs, the outbursts of passionate energy when he performed the remarkable feats with which his name is associated were followed by reactions of lethargy, during which he would lie about with his violin and his books, hardly moving, save from the sofa to the table. Thus, month after month, his papers accumulated, until every corner of the room was stacked with bundles of manuscript which were on no account to be burned, and which could not be put away save by their owner. One winter's night, as we sat together by the fire, 
I ventured to suggest to him that, as he had finished pasting extracts into his commonplace book, he might employ the next two hours in making our room a little more habitable. He could not deny the justice of my request, so, with a rather rueful face, he went off to his bedroom, from which he returned presently, pulling a large tin box behind him. This he placed in the middle of the floor, and, squatting down upon a stool in front of it, he threw back the lid. I could see that it was already a third full of bundles of paper, tied up with red tape into separate packages. "'There are cases enough here, Watson,' said he, looking at me with mischievous eyes. I think that if you knew all that I had in this box, you would ask me to pull some out instead of putting others in. These are the records of your early work, then? I asked. I have often wished that I had notes of those cases. Yes, my boy. These were all done prematurely, before my biographer had come to glorify me. He lifted bundle after bundle in a tender, caressing sort of way. They are not all successes, Watson, said he but there are some pretty little problems among them. Here's the record of the Tarleton murders, and the case of Vambury, the wine merchant, and the adventure of the old Russian woman, and the singular affair of the aluminum crutch, as well as a full account of Riccoletti of the club foot and his abominable wife. And here, ah, now this is really something a little recherché. He dived his hand down to the bottom of the chest, and brought up a small wooden box with a sliding lid, such as children's toys are kept in. From within, he produced a crumpled piece of paper, an old-fashioned brass key, a peg of wood with a ball of string attached to it, and three rusty old discs of metal. "'Well, my boy, what do you make of this lot?' he asked, smiling at my expression. "'It is a curious collection.' "'Very curious.' and the story that hangs around it will strike you as being more curious still. These relics have a history, then? So much so that they are history. What do you mean by that? Sherlock Holmes picked them up one by one and laid them along the edge of the table. Then he reseated himself in his chair and looked them over with a gleam of satisfaction in his eyes. These, said he, or all that I have left, to remind me of the adventure of the Musgrave Ritual. I had heard him mention the case more than once, though I had never been able to gather the details. I should be so glad, said I, if you would give me an account of it. And leave the litter as it is, he cried mischievously. Your tidiness won't bear much strain after all, Watson, but I should be glad that you should add this case to your annals, for there are points in it which make it quite unique in the criminal records of this, or, I believe, of any other country. A collection of my trifling achievements would certainly be incomplete, which contain no account of this very singular business. You may remember how the affair of the glorious Scott, and my conversation with the unhappy man whose fate I told you of, first turned my attention in the direction of the profession which has become my life's work. You see me now when my name has become known far and wide, and when I am generally recognized both by the public and by the official force as being a final court of appeal in doubtful cases. Even when you knew me first, at the time of the affair which you have commemorated in A Study in Scarlet, I had already established a considerable, though not very lucrative, connection. You can hardly realize then how difficult I found it at first, and how long I had to wait before I succeeded in making any headway. 
When I first came up to London, I had rooms in Montague Street, just round the corner from the British Museum, and there I waited, filling in my too abundant leisure time by studying all those branches of science which might make me more efficient. Now and again, cases came in my way, principally through the introduction of old fellow students, for during my last years at university, there was a good deal of talk there about myself and my methods. The third of these cases was that of the Musgrave Ritual, and it is to the interest which was aroused by that singular chain of events, and the large issues which proved to be at stake, that I trace my first stride towards the position which I now hold. Reginald Musgrave had been in the same college as myself, and I had some slight acquaintance with him. He was not generally popular among the undergraduates, though it always seemed to me that what was set down as pride was really an attempt to cover extreme natural diffidence. In appearance, he was a man of exceedingly aristocratic type, thin, high-nosed, and large-eyed, with languid and yet courtly manners. He was indeed a scion of one of the very oldest families in the kingdom, though his branch was a cadet one, which had separated from the northern Musgraves some time in the sixteenth century, and had established itself in western Sussex, where the manor house of Hurlstone is perhaps the oldest inhabited building in the county. Something of his birthplace seemed to cling to the man, and I never looked at his pale, keen face or the poise of his head without associating him with grey archways and mullion windows and all the venerable wreckage of a feudal keep. Once or twice we drifted into talk, and I can remember that more than once he expressed a keen interest in my methods of observation and inference. For four years I had seen nothing of him until one morning he walked into my room in Montague Street. He had changed little, was dressed like a young man of fashion, he was always a bit of a dandy, and preserved the same quiet, suave manner which had formerly distinguished him. "'How has all gone with you, Musgrave?' I asked, after we had cordially shaken hands. "'You probably heard of my poor father's death,' said he. "'He was carried off about two years ago. Since then I have, of course, had the Hurlstone estate to manage, and as I am member of my district as well, my life has been a busy one. But I understand, Holmes, that you are turning to practical ends those powers with which you used to amaze us. Yes, said I. I have taken to living by my wits. I am delighted to hear it, for your advice at present would be exceedingly valuable to me. We have had some very strange doings at Hurlstone, and the police have been able to throw no light upon the matter. It is really the most extraordinary and inexplicable business. You can imagine with what eagerness I listened to him, Watson, for the very chance for which I had been panting during all those months of inaction seemed to have come within my reach. In my inmost heart, I believed that I could succeed where others failed, and now I had the opportunity to test myself. "'Pray, let me have the details,' I cried. Reginald Musgrave sat down opposite to me, and lit the cigarette which I had pushed towards him. "'You must know,' said he, "'that, though I am a bachelor, I have to keep up a considerable staff of servants at Hurlstone, for it is a rambling old place, and takes a good deal of looking after. I preserve two, and in the pheasant months I usually have a house-party, so that it would not do to be short-handed.' Altogether, there are eight maids, the cook, the butler, two footmen, and a boy. The garden and the stables, of course, have a separate staff. Of these servants, the one who had been longest in our service was Brunton, the butler. 
He was a young schoolmaster out of place when he was first taken up by my father, but he was a man of great energy and character, and he soon became quite invaluable in the household. He was a well-grown, handsome man with a splendid forehead, and though he had been with us for twenty years, he cannot be more than forty now. With his personal advantages and his extraordinary gifts, for he can speak several languages and play nearly every musical instrument, it is wonderful that he should have been satisfied so long in such a position, but I suppose that he was comfortable and lacked energy to make any change. The butler of Hurlstone is always a thing that is remembered by all who visit us. But this paragon had one fault— he is a bit of a Don Juan, and you can imagine that, for a man like him, it was not a very difficult part to play in a quiet country district. When he was married, it was all right, but since he had been a widower, we have had no end of trouble with him. A few months ago, we were in hopes that he was about to settle down again, for he became engaged to Rachel Howells, our second housemaid, but he has thrown her over since then, and taken up with Janet Tregellis, the daughter of the head gamekeeper. Rachel, who was a very good girl, but of an excitable Welsh temperament, had a sharp touch of brain fever, and goes about the house now, or did until yesterday, like a black-eyed shadow of her former self. That was our first drama at Hurlstone, but a second one came to drive it from our minds, and it was prefaced by the disgrace and dismissal of Butler Brunton. This is how it came about— I have said that the man was intelligent, and this very intelligence has caused his ruin, for it seemed to have led to an insatiable curiosity about things which did not in the least concern him. I had no idea of the lengths to which this would carry him, until the merest accident opened my eyes to it. I have said that the house is a rambling one. One day last week, on Thursday night to be more exact, I found that I could not sleep, having foolishly taken a cup of strong café noir after my dinner. After struggling against it until two in the morning, I felt that it was quite hopeless, so I rose and lit the candle with the intention of continuing a novel which I was reading. The book, however, had been left in the billiard room, so I pulled on my dressing gown and started off to get it. In order to reach the billiard room, I had to descend a flight of stairs, and then to cross the head of a passage which led to the library and the gun room. You can imagine my surprise when, as I looked down this corridor, I saw a glimmer of light coming from the open door of the library. I had myself extinguished the lamp and closed the door before coming to bed. Naturally, my first thought was of burglars. The corridors at Hurlstone have their walls largely decorated with trophies of old weapons. From one of these I picked up a battle-axe, and then, leaving my candle behind me, I crept on tiptoe down the passage and peeked in at the open door. Brunton the butler was in the library. He was sitting, fully dressed, in an easy chair, with a slip of paper which looked like a map upon his knee, and his forehead sunk forward upon his hand in deep thought. I stood dumb with astonishment, watching him from the darkness. A small taper on the edge of the table shed a feeble light, which sufficed to show me that he was fully dressed. Suddenly, as I looked, he rose from his chair, and walking over to a bureau at the side, he unlocked it and threw out one of the drawers. From this he took a paper, and returning to his seat, he flattened it out beside the paper on the edge of the table, and began to study it with minute attention. My indignation at this calm examination of our family documents overcame me so far that I took a step forward, and Brunton, looking up, saw me standing in the doorway. He sprang to his feet, his face turned livid with fear, and he thrust into his breast the chart-like paper which he had been originally studying. "'So,' said I, 
This is how you repay the trust which we have reposed in you. You will leave my service tomorrow. He bowed with the look of a man who is utterly crushed, and slunk past me without a word. The taper was still on the table, and by its light I glanced to see what the paper was which Brunton had taken from the bureau. To my surprise, it was nothing of any importance at all, but simply a copy of the questions and answers in the singular old observance called the Musgrave Ritual. It is a sort of ceremony peculiar to our family, which each Musgrave for centuries past has gone through on his coming of age, a thing of private interest, and perhaps of some little importance to the archaeologists, like our own blazonings and charges, but of no practical use whatever. "'We had better come back to the paper afterwards,' said I. "'If you think it is really necessary,' he answered, with some hesitation. To continue my statement, however, I relocked the bureau, using the key which Brunton had left, and I turned to go when I was surprised to find that the butler had returned and was standing before me. "'Mr. Musgrave, sir,' he cried in a voice which was hoarse with emotion, "'I can't bear disgrace, sir. I've always been proud of my station in life, and disgrace would kill me. My blood will be on your head, sir. It will indeed, if you drive me to despair. If you cannot keep me after what is past, then for God's sake, let me give you notice and even a month, as if it were of my own free will. I could stand that, Mr. Musgrave, but not to be cast out before all the folk that I know so well. You don't deserve much consideration, Brunton, I answered. Your conduct has been most infamous. However, as you have been a long time in the family, I have no wish to bring public disgrace upon you. A month, however, is too long. Take yourself away in a week, and give what reason you like for going. Only a week, sir, he cried in a despairing voice. A fortnight, say at least a fortnight. A week, I repeated, and you may consider yourself to have been very leniently dealt with. He crept away, his face sunk upon his breast, like a broken man while I put out the light and returned to my room. For two days after this, Brunton was most assiduous in his attention to his duties. I made no allusion to what had passed, and waited with some curiosity to see how he would cover his disgrace. On the third morning, however, he did not appear, as was his custom after breakfast, to receive my instructions for the day. As I left the dining-room, I happened to meet Rachel Howells, the maid, and I have told you, that she had only recently recovered from an illness, and was looking so wretchedly pale and wan, that I remonstrated with her for being at work. "'You should be in bed,' I said. "'Come back to your duties when you are stronger.' She looked at me with so strange an expression, that I began to suspect that her brain was affected. "'I am strong enough, Mr. Musgrave,' said she. "'We will see what the doctor says,' I answered. "'You must stop work now, and when you go downstairs, you must say you wish to see Brunton.' "'The butler is gone,' said she. "'Gone? Gone where?' "'He's gone. No one has seen him. He is not in his room. Oh, yes, he's gone. He's gone.' She fell back against the wall with shriek after shriek of laughter, while I, horrified at this sudden hysterical attack, rushed to the bell to summon help. The girl was taken to her room, still screaming and sobbing, while I made inquiries about Brunton. There was no doubt about it that he had disappeared. His bed was not slept in, and he had been seen by no one since he had retired to his room the night before. And yet, it was difficult to see how he could have left the house, as both windows and doors were found to be fastened in the morning. 
His clothes, his watch, and even his money were in his room, but the black suit which he usually wore was missing. His slippers, too, were gone, but his boots were left behind. Where, then, could Butler Brunton have gone in the night? And what could have become of him now? Of course, we searched the house from cellar to garret, but there was no trace of him. It is, as I have said, a labyrinth of an old house, especially the original wing, which is now practically uninhabited. But we ransacked every room and cellar without recovering the least sign of the missing man. It was incredible to me that he could have gone away, leaving all his property behind him, and yet where could he be? I called in the local police, but without success. Rain had fallen on the night before, and we examined the lawn and paths all round the house, but in vain. Matters were in this state when a new development quite drew our attention away from the original mystery. For two days, Rachel Howells had been so ill, sometimes delirious, sometimes hysterical, that a nurse had been employed to sit up with her at night. On the third night after Brunton's disappearance, the nurse, finding her patient sleeping nicely, had dropped into a nap in the armchair, when she woke in the early morning to find the bed empty, the window open, and no signs of the invalid. I was instantly aroused, and with two footmen, started off at once in search of the missing girl. It was not difficult to tell the direction which she had taken, for, for starting from under her window, we could follow her footmarks easily enough across the lawn, to the edge of the mere, where they vanished close to the gravel path which leads out of the grounds. The lake there is eight feet deep, and you can imagine our feelings when we saw that the trail of the poor demented girl came to an end at the edge of it. Of course, we had the drags at once, and set to work to recover the remains, but no trace of the body could we find. On the other hand, we brought to the surface an object of a most unexpected kind. It was a linen bag which contained within it a mass of old rusted and discoloured metal, and several dull-coloured pieces of pebble or glass. This strange find was all that we could get from the mirror, and although we made every possible search and inquiry yesterday, we know nothing of the fate of either Rachel Howells or of Richard Brunton. The county police are at their wit's end, and I have come to you as a last resource. All right. Thanks, guys, so much for listening today. Uh, like I said, hope you guys are enjoying this. If you are, uh, something that you can do that would help the podcast out a lot and just, you know, it'll make you feel better because you'll get a shout out on the show if you go ahead and just go to uh, iTunes or wherever you listen and leave a review. I know leaving a review on iTunes can be a bit of a headache, um, but if you if you can't do that, just give us a little shout out on social media at Another World Audiobooks on Facebook and uh, the other links are down in the description below. And yeah, that would be a great way to just engage with the show. Let me know that you're listening, that you're enjoying it. It just makes my day so it doesn't feel like I'm just talking to a microphone. And don't forget about that Sherlock competition. We're going to be giving away four full audiobooks, people. Can you believe it? Four full audiobooks. So make sure to get in on that. All the instructions are down in the show notes below. Or you can go to anotherworldaudiobooks.wordpress.com and get all the details there. We'll talk to you next time.